Well, the purpose of a mission statement is to offer a formal summary of the aims and the values of our church. We have a mission statement primarily to tell people what we're all about. And that statement intends to summarize our purpose, the reason for our existence and our values. And hopefully, we'll come to see that our mission arises out of the description of Christ's followers in the Bible. For that reason, our church's mission statement doesn't really intend to set us apart from all of the other churches that are out there. So when you read our mission statement, we are not trying to say, these are the things that make us super unique and different than all of the other churches that exist on planet Earth. Instead, our mission statement actually shows us how we're the same as all of the true churches on planet Earth because we all exist for similar purposes. We have the same reason for existence. Our mission statement as a church goes like this. Resurrection Church exists to glorify our triune God, to grow as followers of Christ, and to go into our community, serving our neighbors and sharing the good news about King Jesus. Now, regardless of how the precise wording works out, hopefully every faithful church has the same mission. And at the heart of that mission, is this statement that we exist to glorify our triune God. As I mentioned last week, in this sermon series, we're departing from our normal practice of preaching through a book of the Bible, one chapter, one section at a time, and instead we're focusing on our mission as a church. We, of course, think we should regularly preach through the Bible. That should be the norm, but we also think that it's helpful and necessary at times to pursue a topical or theological sermon series, and that's what we're doing this week. So last week we considered our revitalization effort, our history, where we've been and where we're going, and starting this week and in the next several weeks, we're going to consider our mission as a church. We want to offer clarity about what our church's mission actually is. And we want to explain what it means as we look to this next phase of our revitalization effort. But today we consider the fundamental aspect of our existence and our primary aim, which is to glorify God. To do so, we'll have a two-part sermon. In part one, we'll consider what the glory of God actually is. What do we mean when we talk about God's glory. And then in the second part of this sermon, we'll consider what it means for us to glorify God. What does that entail for us as a church and as individuals? So let's begin by considering God's glory. If someone came up to you today and asked you, what is God's glory? What would you say? How would you define God's glory? I asked the group I was with in our prayer day yesterday, how would you describe, how would you define God's glory? What would you say? What does it mean? This is a notoriously difficult question to answer. How do you sum up what God's glory is in a sentence? Well, theologians have written massive volumes discussing this issue precisely, 
and I can't summarize them or improve upon them. In fact, as I was talking with our prayer group yesterday, I was only half kidding when I suggested that maybe I should just get up here and say, I have nothing to add to describe or define God's glory. So there's no sermon today. We're just going to sing and praise and glorify God. But we, we need to wrestle with it at least for a little bit. I think it's difficult to define God's glory in part because just defining what glory is, is difficult. What is glory? You can't grab onto it or really give a strict definition that tells us what glory is. Though Webster's third defines glory as something that merits or secures lofty praise, honor, or admiration. Something that's highly distinguished or splendid or It's a renowned quality or attribute or possession or action. Synonyms for glory include things like splendor and majesty and prestige and grandeur. But glory itself is almost undefinable and something that can only be recognized and poetically described and experienced. Poets offer us some help when describing God's glory, like this line from Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem, where he describes God's glory in this way. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. Systematic theologians contribute to our understanding of God's glory with longer definitions like this one from Michael Byrd. God's glory is his unparalleled honorific status and his radiant magnificence. In biblical usage, God's glory is often used as a metonym for God's unsurpassable identity, including his unequaled honor, status, power, and character. It's associated with a visual splendor and majesty. Well, God's glory can't really be precisely defined, but we gesture towards it. We realize it has to be demonstrated. To know God's glory requires an encounter with the living God. It it requires that God reveals himself and offers us an entrance into his being. Perhaps that's why Moses never asked God to define his glory or even to describe his glory, but to show him his glory. I think that ought to be our prayer as a church, that God would show us his glory. But whatever definition we come up with, whatever description we have, our definition and understanding of God's glory has to be broad enough to include all that God is, to include the wide-ranging descriptions of God throughout Scripture, both in his love and mercy and in his justice and judgments. As one theologian comments, God's glory is broader than a single attribute. His glory corresponds to his very being and sometimes functions as a sort of summation of all of his attributes. So we get the sense then that the phrase or the term God's glory refers to the inexpressible collection of all that God is. God's glory is God himself. And if God's glory is God himself, 
then it must be true that God's glory can never be added to or subtracted to because God can never be added to or subtracted from. In other words, God's glory is an objective reality. It's intrinsic to who he is. None of us can diminish God's glory, and none of us can add to it because God's glory corresponds to his very being, and his being is majestic and grand and fitting. Well, that raises complications then when we talk about glorifying God. If God's glory can never be increased or diminished, how is it that we can glorify him? Well, we must distinguish between God's intrinsic, unchanging, objective glory, who God is, and God's acknowledged glory, what we recognize about God and what we say about him. God's objective glory, that reality never changes. But God's acknowledged glory, the extent to which you and I and all of God's creation recognizes and affirms and acknowledges God's glory, does change. So God's glory is a reality that never changes. Our recognition of that does change. And when we glorify God, we're essentially responding in a way that fits with the reality of who God is. Let me try to illustrate the distinction between the intrinsic, objective, never-changing glory and the acknowledged glory by attending to the glory of something else. Think of something that you think is glorious other than God. What is glorious that comes to your mind? One thing that I think is just remarkably glorious is an eagle. I think bald eagles are glorious creatures. Whether they are like soaring through the air or diving into the water and pulling a fish out of the water or just sitting on a tree, I I think whatever it is about eagles that lets them do the things that they do, I don't know what word to put to it other than it's glorious. It's remarkable. And and it exists regardless of anyone sees it. So it, it exists regardless of whether or not you see it or whether or not it's caught on a documentary film. That eagle's glory exists by nature of what it is. But somehow, there's a greater glory. I mean, we don't really add to it, but, but um, when I'm looking at this eagle, there's something that compels me to point my finger at it and to tell anyone who's around me, look at that eagle. There's an eagle up there. And when other people acknowledge its glory, its glory grows in a way, but not adding to it, but expanding the knowledge of it. And when we talk about God's intrinsic, objective glory, God is who he is, and he needs us for nothing for his existence. But there's something about when we point out to him and acknowledge his glory, that his glory grows and expands and is received and experienced by others. That's what we're talking about when we talk about glorifying God. It's pointing to what already exists and letting people know, letting people in on it, letting people into it so they can celebrate it and recognize it and respond to it appropriately. Why do we need, in our mission statement, 
this pointing of our finger to God, saying that he's glorious. In our discussion in our prayer group about this yesterday, someone said, well, maybe this shouldn't be in our mission statement if it doesn't, if like we say it so much and it doesn't really mean anything because our repetition sort of deadens it. I think that was a good observation. If it doesn't mean anything, we shouldn't have it in there. But I think if we can grasp onto the fact that, fact that glorifying God is pointing the finger to God and saying, look at him, acknowledging him, his glory, then we need it in our mission statement because the natural, sinful human inclination is to refuse to glorify God, to ignore God, to allow, to allow God's glory to pass by us without us ever look, looking at it. Our natural inclination is to exchange God's glory for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. And it's only by an act of God's grace, an act of grace made possible through Jesus' own glorification of God in his death and resurrection, that we can point our finger to God and say, look at his glory. Because it's not natural to us, we need it in our mission statement, and we need to regularly remind ourselves that we exist to glorify God. We believe that all of creation testifies to the glory of God. We believe that Jesus has borne witness to the glory of God, and that God has shown his glory in his acts of redemption. We even agree with the catechisms that we memorize that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we also must affirm that our existence is fundamentally about glorifying God. We exist to glorify God and to participate in his mission of redemption that will result in the knowledge of the glory of God spreading across the earth and filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. So we exist to glorify God, to catch a glimpse of his glory, and to allow others to see that glory as well. So I just want to encourage you, pray the prayer of Moses for God to show you his glory for you to have an encounter with the living God that moves our mission statement beyond a mere line that we read or that we recite or a truth that we affirm to something that you experience and participate in as you glorify God in your life and as you participate in the life of this church. That's part one, the glory of God, just gesturing to the grandeur, the magnificence of all that God is. But part two of this sermon, we now think about our responsibility to glorify God. How do we glorify God? What does it mean for us to glorify him? What does it mean for us to increase the acknowledgement of God's glory? Well, I am certain that our glorification of God is not something that's accomplished by creating a checklist of items to complete. Rather, our glorification of God requires a habit of life as individuals and as a church that cultivates the knowledge of God and that orients us toward God and that results in our proclamation of God's glory to others. 
So I, I think glorification of God includes more than those three things. But I think for this sermon to help us think about this, we can use these three categories of glorification. Cultivating a knowledge of God, orienting ourselves toward God, and proclaiming God as facets of the glorification responsibility that we have. So let's consider each category. First, to glorify God, we must adopt a habit of life that cultivates a knowledge of God. That's what Ben read about in Psalm 29, 1 through 9, where angels in the heavens and all of creation are called on to ascribe glory to God. And then what does the psalmist do? He goes on to describe God, who God is, and what God has done. And, and not just in hyper-spiritualized ways, but also in the, the warp and woof of creation. God is the one who has magnificence that creates lightning and thunder, and that causes deer to give birth. We cultivate a knowledge of God that sees God everywhere in all things. We ought to grow in our knowledge of God, both in our knowledge about God and in our relationship with God, our knowledge of God. We must give ourselves over to encountering the living God, opening ourselves up to know him through every means that he offers to us. How do we come to know God? How do we see his glory? We know that God reveals his glory in a variety of ways, including in creation. Read Psalm 19.1 and Romans 1.20, where creation declares the glory of God. God reveals his glory through his kind gifts, as we learn from Psalm 34.8 and 103.2-5 in James 1.17. We learn about God's glory through the narratives in the Old Testament, like when God displays his glory to Moses, and Moses can't even bear to see the fullness of God's glory, and then his face radiates with light because he's encountered the glorious God. We see God's glory in the Christ who we encounter in the scriptures, the Jesus who was transfigured as we read about today, and the Jesus who glorified God in his death and who was himself glorified in his resurrection and ascension. Throughout the Bible, we learn that God is constantly making himself known. He's constantly revealing his glory, and all that we need to do is pay attention. Pay attention to the Bible and pay attention to creation. Pay attention to God's work in the world. And to that end, Christians must adopt a manner of life that involves contemplation and meditation on God. We must investigate the explicit revelation of God in the Bible. And we must move through our lives with our eyes wide open to the re revelation of God's glory in creation and in his kind provision for us. So what does that mean? Well, for Christians then, observing the glory of an eagle diving into the river to grab a fish is not just about the glory of eagles, but about the glory of the God who created the eagle. 
for Christians enjoying a good meal is not just about the perfect pairings and the seasonings, but about the God who feeds us our daily bread and created a world of wonder and delight that we can experience with all of our senses. For Christians, reading the Bible is not about gaining trivia or even primarily about finding the nugget that we can grab on and plug into our life and have a nice application point, but about encountering God and contemplating Him and beholding Him in all of His glory. Coming to the table every Sunday is not just to remember that Jesus died for us, but to remember that in His death, he glorifies the Father, and he gives us access to the Father's glory. And apart from Jesus, we would never encounter the living God and live ourselves. Every moment then, every experience, every reading of Scripture, every gathering of our church is an opportunity to contemplate the glory and grandeur of God as an end in itself to receive God and receive him as our gift and our inheritance and the one with which we need no other. So how does that translate into our formal gatherings at Resurrection Church? It means that every gathering is ultimately about encountering God and beholding his glory. It's about coming to know and perceive the glory of God and coming to love the God of glory. We should certainly come to our church gatherings for other things like relationships and personal encouragement and spiritual development and service to others. But ultimately, all of that should come as an outflow of an encounter with the glory of God. Our services then should not be about us. You'll notice we don't sing primarily songs about us, and we don't come here for a therapy session, but instead we come to encounter and contemplate and worship and praise our God. I think one of the highest compliments our church has ever gotten is last year when a guy named Carlton Harris came here to preach, and when he was describing to us what he experienced in our service, he said, your church made a lot of God today. Your church is centered on God. We want people, when they encounter us, to say this church knows and worships and glorifies God. They're all about God. We must give ourselves over to knowing God truly as our triune God in our teaching and in our preaching, in our Old and New Testament scripture readings, in our recitation of the creeds, that give us the grammar for speaking truly about God. In our relationships, in our sharing of the meals, in our gathering together, we gather as the temple of God, the dwelling place for God's spirit. So our life as a church must be all about God and his glory. So we come to reflect on God's glory, to contemplate him, to speak rightly about him so that we can do as Psalm 29 instructs, that all of his temple should cry glory to our God. Throughout the Bible, this phrase glorify God or glorifying God is like a synonym for praising God. 
So for example, in Romans 15, 9 through 11, Paul explains that non-Israelites have been included in the new covenant people of God so that they would glorify God for his mercy. And then the Old Testament proof text is a verse about non-Israelites praising God. So when we're talking about glorifying God, pointing our finger to him and saying, look at God's glory, we're just talking about praising God rejoicing in who he is and what he's done, singing praises to his name. It's acknowledging the objective glory of God. So if we want to know if we're failing to meet our mission statement, if we're failing to have the reason for our existence, we'll know we're failing when we fail to give praise to God. Hopefully that never happens in our services. But as a point of application, I wonder how many days of our week, if someone ran an analysis of all of our speech, would we be found to have failed to give glory to God? How often would we misattribute glory to other things? How often would we set our hearts on other things and worship them instead? And why is that? I don't know why it is. I think in part it's because our hearts are inclined to worship other things because we're sinful. I think at, at other times it's because, because we're not courageous enough to attribute to God the glory due his name. So instead of pointing out the ultimate glory of God behind the thing, we just look at the thing itself. Perhaps it's because some of us are dredged in cynicism and we're so not wanting to be that fluffy hyper spiritual guy that we can never actually attribute to God the things that we ought to attribute to God. So when another church grants us a gift instead of just saying that's really cool of them, we ought to be praising the God who gives all things to his people even when we don't ask. And and when we have bad weather, when we have frigidly cold days. We ought to reflect not just on the coldness of the day, but on the glory of God in the coldness of the day. When we look at the snow out there, we ought to reflect on the Psalms that talk about the snow. And and when we see the sunrise, we ought to reflect on the glory of God in the sunrise, in the light that reflects and causes us to reflect on the light of the world, Jesus. And that's not trivial. And we don't have to do it in a way that only works on Instagram. Take every moment to reflect on the glory of God. And it might feel weird at first, but I think as you do it, as you speak of God's glory, and as you point your finger to him, and you actually see him in that encounter, you'll be caught up into God's glory, and his glory will be renewed in you as well. And his glory will be renewed in our church as well. So at Resurrection Church, we must give ourselves over to knowing God and to responding to the objective, intrinsic glory of God with worship and praise, acknowledging him for who he is. So we glorify God by cultivating a knowledge of God in speaking rightly in response to that knowledge. But second, We glorify God by orienting our entire lives 
to God. We must orient our lives as individuals and as a church to God. I think this is what the psalmist is getting at in verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 29 that Ben read earlier, when the psalmist moves from describing God in all of his glory to describing God as the king, enthroned above all things. When we come to see God for who he is, and when we ascribe glory to him, we ought to praise him and worship him. But more than that, we ought to orient our lives to him, submitting ourselves to the commands and the rulership of our great king. We ought to give ourselves over to obeying God our king, to living our lives with God at the center. Where we are no longer the king of our life, where This church is not our church, but it's God's church, and we live in obedience to his commands. I think we talk a lot about having God at the center of our life, and and we can talk about it so often that it starts to lose its meaning, and we, we lose the image of what it is to have God at the center. So I want to draw on some language that we've been accustomed to in our modern political discourse to, to unsettle us a little bit, but to help us reconceive what it means to have God at the center of our lives. In popular discussions relating to society, there are different social theorists who focus on the concept of centering which refers to the process of focusing on and privileging certain perspectives, experiences, or identities over others within a particular discourse, narrative, or system. So these theorists will look at society and they'll analyze it and they'll try to see what's centered in society and why. What's the dominant thing in society? And then what things are in the margins? What's marginalized? What's not at the center? And what they try to do is say, well, if we can identify what's at the center of society, we can see who holds the power in the influence. And we'll see that people's experiences are interpreted through the eyes of the people that are at the center. So in critical reflection, these theorists are trying to analyze society and, and generally they're trying to say what's at the center should be decentered, and things that are in the margins should be centered. Are you familiar with this? Hopefully you've heard this. Um, and, and I think we can learn from this kind of conversation a couple of lessons. One lesson is that it, it's probably true that whatever is centered in society has extreme power and influence for running society and interpreting life events. That observation is helpful Because if we're trying to say that God should be at the center of everything, in the center of our lives, then what we need to do is analyze our lives and see what's the driving engine in our life. What's at the center? And if it's not God, we have to start to pick up on the fact that whatever's at the center of our lives shapes how we live. It shapes who we are. And we need to decenter that thing and put God at the center. God is the one who should be at the center of our lives, driving our experience of life, our actions, what we value, what we give our attention to, in conscious and unconscious ways. In our church, we should regularly, critically analyze what is at the center of our church's life. 
we should consider what is it that drives the engine of our church? What is it at the center of our life? And to no one's surprise, I'm trying to insist that God should be at the center of our life. His glory should be at the center of our church's life and nothing else. And if we can get God at the center of our life, if we can center God to use the language of our day, then he'll begin to take control and exercise his power and authority, and everything else will fall into place as it ought to be. When God is centered, when his glory is recognized, everything else falls into place, and we experience the benefits and the goodness of God's glory. The benefits and goodness described in Psalm 29, 10, and 11 of blessing and strength and peace. When we put ourselves under God's command, when he's the center of our life, we experience his blessing and strength and peace. So to try to further help visualize what it means for God to be at the center of our lives, in the, of our church's life, and how everything else falls into place when he is, you can kind of envision a wheel with that little hole in the center. And, and it, imagine that wheel on your car. It, everything works because the hole is in the center and the axle's going through it and everything just evenly rotates. And I'm not a science guy to know how like measurements work and why that is, but I know that if you took that hole in the wheel and you moved it off center in one of the wheels and then you put the axle in and you tried to drive your car, it wouldn't work. The wheel wouldn't wheel. It wouldn't roll because the center is off center. Everything else now is out of place. But when you get it back into the center, it just works. And I think that's kind of the image that we need for having God at the center of our life. When God is at the center of the wheel of our life, we roll forward in his blessing and peace and security, and and it only works when God's at the center. I don't know how to say it other than that. When, When we push God out of the center and off to the margins of our life, we're eventually going to crash. We're we're not going to live and flourish and thrive as we ought to as a church. But when God is at the center, when we live in obedience to his commands, and when we structure our life with him at the center and marginalize everything else and let everything else find its place and its position respective to God at the center, we'll receive from him strength and blessing and peace. So what does that mean for us? How, How are we to put God at the center at Resurrection Church. It means that our interpretation and experience of the events of our life, ranging from what happens in our home to what happens across the globe, are all interpreted and experienced in light of the redeeming work of God in the world. It means that at the center of everything that we do is our acknowledgement of the triune God. From the events on our calendar to the content of our morning service, God ought to be explicitly at the center of everything. It means that as individuals, we ought to critically evaluate our lives to consider whether or not God is actually at the center. We can make that evaluation by doing an audit of the way we spend our time and on the way we spend our money and on thinking about what words come out of our mouth 
or by asking somebody who knows us to identify in us what is at the center of our lives based on the way that we live. So the first step of putting God at the center of our life as individuals in a church is just doing an audit and asking the question, is God at the center or has something else replaced him? And then whenever we see that we've marginalized God, that we've pushed him out of the center of our life, we must repent and return to him and orient ourselves back to him, allowing him to reign at the center of our lives and allowing everything else to find its proper place in relation to him. There's no checkbox that can help us do this. There's no one-time arrival done He's at the center. We don't think about it anymore. This must become a habit of our life as individuals and as a church to regularly evaluate whether or not God is at the center and then correct whenever we've pushed him out to the margins. So we glorify God by cultivating knowledge of God, by orienting our lives to God. And then finally, we glorify God by proclaiming his glory to others. We glorify God by proclaiming his glory to others. God's intrinsic glory, his objective glory, never changes. But God's acknowledged glory does increase when we proclaim his glory and when we make others aware of his glory. And we must do so because, as I already mentioned, our human inclination is to refuse to glorify God and to replace his glory with a lie, to exchange his glory with idolatry as we redirect worship from God to other things. But part of our mission as a church is to proclaim God's glory to others, to let other people know about God's glory until, as Habakkuk puts it, the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is to say, we ought to proclaim the glory of God and work to bring, out, bring about an acknowledgement of God's glory until people across the globe recognize the glory of God. So we proclaim his glory. We announce his glory. We point to his glory. But how exactly do we do that? I think we have to keep asking that deeper question of, well, what does that mean? What does it look like? What steps do we need to take to proclaim God's glory? Instead of giving an answer off the cuff, I decided to look up every instance in the New Testament of when people glorified God. And to no surprise, we see people glorifying God Basically, wherever Jesus teaches and wherever Jesus and the apostles conduct miracles, where they heal, where they cast out demons, everybody responds by glorifying God. His ministry of miracles, this just happens over and over again. People glorify God when there are healings, when there are demons cast out, when there's this authoritative teaching from Jesus, when people are raised from the dead. But I don't know about you, but I've never raised anyone from the dead as a means of bringing glory to God, or healed someone, or cast out a demon. So what does it look like then for us to glorify God as Resurrection Church? Well, 
in continuing to read the New Testament, there were three other categorical ways or actions that brought about God's glory that doesn't involve one of us having to raise somebody from the dead. So it's possible. It's possible for us to glorify God. So I just want to briefly articulate these three categorical actions that bring about God's glory, and then we'll revisit two out of the three of these in later sermon series. First, We proclaim or we can bring about God's glory by speaking directly about God and his redeeming work in the gospel. This is the most obvious one, but Paul comments on it in 2 Corinthians 9.13. When we speak about the redeeming work of God and people come to receive redemption in Christ, they glorify God as a result. When we share God's redeeming love displayed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we offer people the only way to a true encounter with God, with the God of glory. So it's through direct proclamation of the gospel and teaching about God that God will be glorified among all people. So we ought to do that in our formal gatherings, and then you and I ought to do that when we scatter and represent the church of Jesus Christ wherever we go. We ought to speak about God and the gospel, and we ought to point our finger to God in praise to him. That's the most obvious one. Hopefully, we're doing that. So I want to ask you, are you speaking directly about God and the gospel to others so that people will glorify God? Second, We can proclaim God's glory by serving others with good deeds as we live honorable lives and as we love in imitation of Christ. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 15, 6, that people will see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. And in John 15, 8, Jesus teaches his disciples that if they, if they follow him, if they live fruitful lives, people will know that they're his disciples, and that is the way that God will be glorified. And in 1 Peter 2, 12, he teaches that if you live an honorable life, that people, even though they want to accuse you of something, will have no recourse but to glorify God because of your good deeds. So if we want to glorify God, then we ought to live in imitation of our Savior as we live the kinds of lives that care for the sick and help the poor and serve the needy and display love through self-giving. If we want to glorify God, we ought to live honorable lives that are free of charges of sin. We ought to go about doing good deeds without any self-interest so that those who observe them will glorify our Father who is in heaven. So how do we glorify God? By doing good deeds as we live honorable lives and as we love in imitation of Christ. Without belaboring this too much, a friend sent me a news article this week describing several Christian organizations and pastors who are not known for good deeds and living honorable lives, but instead for activism in certain areas that have nothing to do with God or the gospel. And I simply want to say 
that our church should not be known for anything other than God and the gospel and doing good deeds and loving other people. That's what we ought to be known for. So we should not hitch our church to other causes that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God, even though every single one of us is tempted to do that time and time again. And you as an individual Christian should not connect the name of Jesus to some cause that you care about that has nothing to do with God or bringing about good deeds or love or service or, or embodying the values of God's kingdom. Too often, Christians in the church are connected to things that God does not want to be associated with. And part of our mission to glorify God means that we will refuse to do that. Now, because there are so many bad things that people connect Christ's name to, I'm not going to try to list them all, but reflect on that. And, and as, you th as you are engaging in the life of our church, if you start to see us as pastors or us as a church start to take on causes or concerns that have nothing to do with God's kingdom or bringing God's glory, you should call us out on that. And as we seek to help each other grow as disciples and followers of Jesus, we should call one another out on that when we start connecting the name of Jesus to something that Jesus never connected his name to. We'll better proclaim God's glory than by serving others with good deeds in love. So we speak and we serve, but then finally in the New Testament, we learn that we proclaim God's glory by suffering. We proclaim God's glory by suffering well as Christians. So just two interconnected examples here. In John 21, 19, Jesus spoke to Peter, and, and he signaled to Peter that he would die, he would be martyred, and this is the way that John interprets that. He, he says that this would be the way that Peter would glorify God. He'd glorify God in the manner of his death, in his martyrdom. Christians glorify God by suffering well. And then the Peter who would glorify God in his death wrote in 1 Peter 4.16 that we should suffer well so that God will be glorified. He, he wrote this, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in having that name. Our suffering ultimately will bring glory to God. Whether that's the everyday life kind of suffering or a call to martyrdom, if we suffer well as Christians, in imitation of our Savior who suffered on our behalf, we will bring glory to God. So we don't run from suffering. In fact, we embrace suffering as we give up of ourselves and we give up of our comfort for the good of others. And as we face perhaps explicit persecution from people who hate God in the church, in our suffering well, if we suffer as Christians, we'll bring glory to God. Perhaps now in your suffering, you need to reconceive of it, not just as a hardship that's common to all of humanity, but an opportunity to display God's glory in your suffering. 
we glorify God in our speech, in our service, and in our suffering. As we think about our life as a church, as we evaluate whether or not we deserve to continue existing, we have to return to that primary purpose of glorifying God with our words, with our actions, with our lives. So appropriately, let's conclude with this exhortation from Peter, who glorified God in his martyrdom when he wrote, If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. God, we pray that we would be a church that glorifies you. But we know that we can only glorify you if you show us your glory. So we pray that you would show us your glory, that you would open up our eyes to see who you are, that you would cause us to value you and to treasure you and to set our heart and our mind and our affections on you so that our entire lives will be oriented to you, so that you will take up center stage in our life, so that you will reign supreme so that in all of our days, whether it's in our speaking or our serving or our suffering, that your name will be glorified now and forevermore. In Christ, we pray that this will be true for us. Amen.